Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 304 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a grand conversation with playwright, director, and producer Melissa Moshito. And we talk with Melissa about her story, how she ended up, who she is, and where she is. We also discuss some of her more recent works and an underlining theme that is, what do we lose in a culture that oppresses women? We look at some of the unfortunate similarities as to how women have been treated for the last 600 years. We talk about uplifting unheard voices and how theater can affect social change. We talk about climate change and we share some words of inspiration. A great conversation with Melissa Moshito on today's program. We have an EW essay by yours truly titled Revolution and another beautifully written and wonderfully read essay by our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, titled My Father's Mustache. And we also share a poem called Uncle Taylor. This, of course, as is always the case, will be imbued, infused with the energy of several great tunes. So nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 304 of Troubadours and Tours. Every day it's a getting closer Going faster than a roller coaster Love like yours will surely come my way Hey, hey, hey Every day it's a getting faster Everyone said go ahead and ask her Love like yours will surely come my way Hey, hey, hey Every day seems a little longer Stronger, come what may. Do you ever long for true love from me? Every day it's a getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way. Hey, hey, hey. True love from me Every day 
It's a getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way. Hey, hey, hey. Love like yours will surely come my way. Revolution. This city is a joke, filled with a big bunch of jamokes. I said out loud as I walked past the cultural center. I saw tour buses waiting to pull in and park as theater personnel frantically, while dressed in chill hipster garb, shoveled ice from the curb with what looked to me like coal shovels. Spamalot is in town for a week of shows, and our mayor's, nephew's, high school quarterback, son-in-law's, business partner, teenage crush, is running the crew from Public Works, and thus given the fact that nary a one of those folks is trained or motivated to truly embrace their work, it doesn't get done. And instead, a hipster ends up with globules of ice balls in his beard and extra chores to address. This is a state of organizational duress in a moment of time. Does your city operate in a similar manner? I wonder how long before clan and tribal culture will not be so prevalent in this neck of the woods. It holds the greater collective back from actualizing a fairer, more comprehensive, effective approach at community building, societal and individual evolution. Has it become clear to you yet that we surely need a mighty and true revolution?
Hello. Hello, Melissa. Is that you? It is. It is I. Before I go any further, I want to make sure I say your last name correctly. I believe it's Moshito. Is that right? Yes, Moshito is correct. You gave it a little oomph. I appreciate that. <laughs> I thank you for asking first because I have had a few unfortunate moments where someone mispronounces it. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I'm thrilled to be invited on. Well, uh, it's it's going to be a good conversation, I'm certain. Before we get started, let me share with our listeners a little bit about you. Melissa F. Moshito is a director, playwright, and producer. She is the founding artistic director of The Anthropologist, a company that creates evocative, movement-infused work about social issues. With The Anthropologist, she devises, directs, and scripts provocative, dynamic work for the stage, including these... Artemisia's Intent, winner of the best solo drama Frigid 2018, as well as No Man's Land. Theater is Easy stated about this production, quote, perhaps it's exactly what theater makers need to see right now. Another of Melissa's acclaimed productions is titled Give Us Bread, garnered this review from NewYorkTheater.com, quote, thoroughly entertaining and thought-provoking. Melissa's full-length play, When Santa Domenico, Domingo excuse me, Isn't Enough, won Best Play at the 2006 Downtown Urban Theater Festival and was a top 10 finalist in Repertorio Español's 2006 Nuestros Voces National Playwriting Competition. One of her most memorable experiences was serving as a directing apprentice to Ricardo Ienesta of Capania Atalaya in Seville, Spain. She is married to an engineer-slash-secret dramaturge and also the mother to two dramatic little children. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is happy to have on the program Melissa F. Moshito. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very impressive. Uh, very impressive. Well, it is kind of, you know, it's, you know when, you, when you squeeze it all together, you know, in your bios, you can leave out all of the... Uh, projects you chased that didn't go as planned and you know all those other things yeah so, yeah all the all the all the the, the failure <laughs> you know you just edit out the failure yeah, but that builds that builds into you character insight and makes you i guess uh grow to a higher uh level right that's how we get our success yeah, yeah for sure and you can't get the success without the uh the opposite exactly exactly and um, I, I understand that for you, uh, your focus oftentimes has to do with some of the trials and tribulations that we face as human beings in the work that uh, is done via the anthropologists, uh, yes. right? Yes, indeed. I guess we, we, uh, we should start though first, we'll get to that, with your story, so to speak. You know, tell us a little bit how you have become who you are, how you got where you are. Yeah, um, I'm I'm just a, a girl from the suburbs. Um, yeah, I, I you know I grew up outside of uh, Boston, in the in the burbs. Um, by all accounts, uh, a very happy and fulfilled childhood. I'm very fortunate for that. Um, and I had two parents who, while they they may not have always understood my desires they they really supported them and and so because of that I was able to travel quite a bit a little bit starting when I was in 
high school, um, but really in college. They supported me living abroad, which led me to to work with that company in in Sevilla, uh, and that really opened my eyes to so much. Um, just in terms of you know the 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 place that theater has in or has had in Europe and, and different traditions of theater making. Um, of course, there are so many others to be explored, but that definitely uh, made a mark on me. Um, and I think, you know, and my grandparents used to take me to see uh, a, a theater production every year for my birthday. So that was always something that was so exciting. So I kind of grew up on... Broadway type theater, you know, going into Boston to see what big production was on tour. Uh, and it wasn't until I went to college, I went to University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and I worked with a really phenomenal theater company there called uh, New World Theater that is sadly now defunct. Uh, but they really opened my eyes to who can be making theater what they what theater can talk about uh and that really awoke in me that this intersection of theater and social justice that has informed most of my work excellent excellent and and then you now so now you're are, are you uh, in boston or you're in new york city i'd imagine now right I'm in new york city now yes i think i'm i think i'm an officially a new yorker i've been here long enough and i gave birth to two new yorkers so I think I earned the title now. Definitely, definitely. Are you? Uh, which borough are you in? I am in Manhattan. Uh, it's we ca- fondly call our neighborhood Upstate Manhattan, feeling <laughs> far north. Um, but yeah, I've I've been here for fourteen years, and it very much feels like home, and I love it. Excellent. And I apologize for mispronouncing. I thought it was Seville, Spain. I, 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 um, that, that's the American pronunciation, so no apologies, you know, necessary. Yeah. Uh, so do you speak uh, Spanish at all, or did you pick up some of the, the language when you were there? Yes, I'm a little rusty now, but I, I'm pretty proficient. I first uh, went there on exchange in college to, to do just that, to learn how to speak Spanish, and and then I fell in love with Company Atalaya, and I wrote to them and said, please, can I work for you? And they said, well, we can't pay you anything, but sure. Um, and I went out there on a tourist visa and, and uh, apprenticed uh, there for three months. Um, and that's where I really, really cemented my Spanish, because um, even though they would speak some English, uh, I really you know, had to fend for myself there. And, and and it was interesting because learning that accent of southern Spain uh, is sort of akin to the Boston accent where letters are dropped ah. uh, or added. Uh, so this sort of sentiment of, well, if you can learn to, to speak Spanish in Andalusia, then you can speak Spanish anywhere, which is somewhat true. So. Excellent. Excellent. I know I speak uh, broken Italian, and that's why sometimes I infuse uh-huh. a word with that little accent, though uh, it's embarrassing, I think, when I'm out there. They understand me, uh, but it's a dialect, uh, and it's it's something that's probably even lost at this point. I don't know if there are a lot of dialects in Spain, probably a bit, right? Sure, yeah. I'm yeah. not so familiar with them, but... So anyhow, uh, language, what a wonderful thing. Let's get into the language 
that you work with on stage in terms of some of uh, some of the uh, productions and 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 the intent i guess the themes when we're talking about investigative theater i believe that's what the uh, the anthropologist is is sort of called that that company what does that mean investigative theater uh you know that that came out of this tradition of sort of excavating stories from history and and we were really now with with every new play are we we start with a provocation a question that we're hoping to not not outright answer i mean that's something we hope that we we send the audience off on a journey to explore what the answer might be for them um but really trying to dig into something, get messy with with a with a theme or a question, uh, and using research, cultural artifacts, history as our guide. Uh, give me an example, if you would, of a question that you would pose to an audience through uh, a production. Sure. Um, well, most recently for Artemisia's intent, the the provocation became what is lost in a culture that oppresses women culturally and institutionally. So we were looking specifically at young women artists through the story of a 17th century painter, Artemisia Gentileschi, that I'd like to say it's a, it's a very contemporary story that happens to be 400 years old. Um, and really trying to look at both the, her personal narrative, because in many ways it is so gripping and it, it cannot be avoided, uh, as well as just sort of what, what that can show us uh, on an institutional and structural level. So we used her paintings and, and letters that she wrote and, and trial testimony to dig into those questions, that, that question. And uh, are the productions pretty much um, steeped in, in dialogue and less in, in visual uh, uh, scene, scenery and, and movement? Is it more about the discourse, the verbal discourse? You know, it depends. It depends on the project. Uh, I would say, you know, we're definitely a text. Uh, we can we can be quite text based, but we're trying to infuse that with our visual storytelling, physical storytelling, um, using a lot of dance influence. Oh, dance! Great. Well, you know, I'm, I I try and be cautious about using that word. I wish very much to be a dancer. So I say we're all movers. Um, really trying to, to just feel, feel the show on a, on a visceral level. Well, you um, won Best Solo Drama Frigid, Frigid Fest 2018, and that's, yeah. that's right there. Uh, I guess, is it in, in Manhattan and Brooklyn as well? or uh, Lower Manhattan. Lower, lower, okay. And what, what was the audience's... Response: Why did they like this pro- this production so much? Oh, um, yeah, we I, I, we were blown away by the response, frankly, because you know when you're talking about um, 
you know, complicated subject material like sexual assault, and that is covered in this show, uh, it, it's a, it can be intimidating. Um, but I, I think that, for one thing, the performer, Mariah, I, I can say this in a, in a very uh, objective manner, is just absolutely fabulous. And I'm so fortunate to have had the chance to work with her for several years now. And we really created the piece for her uh, and with her. It was a team of five women who, who created the piece. So all of our work is devised. So by that, I mean, we are working as an ensemble to grapple with the source material, interact with these artifacts that we bring into the room, devising and proposing scenes, um, or elements of a show and, and create the work that way. Um, but I, I think that because so much of what Artemisia went through personally and through her career felt so uh, so present to us and so in the now that that was very um, appealing to people, reassuring in a way of like, oh, it's it's not just me, it's not just now. Uh, this has been going on for hundreds of years and kind of kind of emboldening us to especially women to really push back um, right, riding the wave of the me too movement, which we did not anticipate when we started creating the show. And, and that is in a way a, a bit uh, depressing too. I mean, for hundreds of years in many ways uh, the experience of women has, hasn't changed. Right. And uh, Armitesia, what exactly can you give us a little bit more insight for, for those who would sure. know what, what did she experience back, you know, those hundreds of years ago? Mm -hmm. So she um, was born uh, in, in the late 1500s. Uh, and uh, the, the most remarkable, well, the, the piece of her story that grips people is that uh, in 1612, she went to tr on trial her father had brought a suit against her former tutor. Her father was a painter, so Artemisia was being trained as a painter. Her father had hired a tutor who then raped her. Uh, and her father took him to trial. Now, at that point, it was a property trial because women were quite literally considered property at that time. And remarkably, that the the testimony has been preserved and was then translated into English. So we still get this window into this young woman's life. And she was a, a teenager when this happened. Um, and at the time when we heard about the story, and, and mind you, this happened towards the very beginning of her career, and she went on to have a really successful career, certainly in, by, by the standards of that time, one of the few uh, women painters to be really successful. Um, when we heard that story, it also happened to be when Taylor Swift was going through uh, legal proceedings with the DJ that had touched her inappropriately. Uh, and we were just really struck because some of the quotes that came out of that uh, 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 Taylor Swift's trial really echoed um, Artemisia. 
uh, and and just sort of thinking about the the place of a young woman artist in the world and who the gatekeepers are and what happens uh, when women's careers are curtailed by men in charge, uh, but also beyond the the interpersonal ramifications. You know, what what does that mean on the larger scale? Uh, and how are women represented in art? Where are women represented? What are they allowed to paint? And that's something that we explore too in this story are, are you know, the, the women that Artemisia painted and how and why she painted them that way. And how did she paint them? Well, uh, we, we, we look at a lot of the paintings that capture biblical stories. Uh, so for example, the story of Bathsheba, who is commonly portrayed as uh, a loose woman, if you will, and was, it was a very popular subject because one could have a painting of a naked woman because she is typically painted, you know, bathing on her terrace, um, being spied on by King David. Um, but we really see in 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 all of the paintings that Artemisia did were were commissioned. So it wasn't, oh, I feel like painting this today. It was a, a, a patron saying, I would like you to paint this and I'm going to supply the materials. So you do see in, in much of her work uh, where she's really trying, I think, to, to push back on the narrative that we've seen before and give, give uh, more agency to the women that she's painting. So I, I I love it, and and so I think I'm I'm getting uh, the gist to a certain extent. So when when we're talking about Artemisia's intent, that was what was questioned uh, by the male uh, gatekeepers too in her paintings. Was that was that part of it? Uh, yeah, sure. I think sort of any any. Uh... Like that's too risque. That's too provocative. That's too empowering of a of a, an energy you're giving that that female well, I study. Think, I think perhaps that are, that is the opinion of of men that came later in terms of how her work fares in the larger canon, right? So during her lifetime, she was quite successful, and of course, there were. It's written that. Uh, some art historians think, oh, you know, men were titillated by being able to have a, a, a painting of a naked woman painted by a woman. Um, but I think later when she's being sort of analyzed or cataloged by male art historians, there is that sentiment of, oh, how could a woman have painted all this? Uh, and, and, you know, we see that over and over again of women's artistic voice being silenced or questioned or minimized mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay excellent this is very very uh interesting and um uh, stimulating in, in terms of the history and the sociological analysis you're sharing melissa i love it let's okay. and thank you so much let's move on a little bit more before you know it time will be over for this mm -hmm. conversation so you are listening to Troubadours and Rock on Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Let me ask you then, uh, let's, let's make this a little broader. Um, right now, what, what social issues do you think are most pressing? And, 
and how, how that and I, I guess this is coupled with it can theater and art in general affect social change can it help us with these pressing social issues as you might see them it, my resounding answer is yes. And, and when you had emailed me that you might ask me that question, I was so excited about that. Um, I, I think that theater can and has and will continue to affect social change uh, in several ways. I actually, this past week was really fascinating. I was very fortunate to be invited to participate in a course at Columbia Law. It was a one-week workshop where they brought together law students, activists, and artists to spend a week investigating tools for and, and how to create a template for creating art that can influence policy change. So it was incredibly fascinating and inspiring, especially when at the end of the week we all shared um, little uh, proposals for projects that we were interested in. Uh, and just this, the simple act of sharing a personal story and, and the whole week was rooted in storytelling as, as a catalyst for change was so remarkable. And, and having that be paired with the live performing arts uh, just really elevates the act of, of telling the story in a way that's just that's different from from other modes um, and so I think that theater can both uplift unheard voices and reveal stories that have typically been concealed and it can also offer a vision for what a more just world might look like um, that's, that's where I'm putting my money. Now we just need to get more money to do it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And, and if you were to, uh, list a few of those issues right now in society that you think are pressing, what, what would you put on that list? Ooh, number one, uh, is, is climate change. Uh, we have done several projects that have, have centered, been centered on that. And while there are many, many pressing concerns right now, um, you know, personally, I'm very invested in women's rights, LGBTQ, uh, as well as uh, dismantling racism uh, through theater. I think that there's a lot of power there. Uh, however, we're, we're, we're running out of time in which to be able to make decisions about how uh, what the future is going to look like. We've all we've already lost a lot of time in terms of climate change. Yeah, uh, I agree. And, I agree. Right, and I think that theater ha can play in a, a really crucial role in that. So this uh, this past October, we had a show. Uh, we have a show called This Sinking Island that celebrates the voices of climate refugees as well as um, imagines a future of Manhattan and really of so many places in the United States and beyond that will be altered by rising sea levels. Uh, and this was specifically a family-inclusive play, so it runs about 30 minutes, um, 
and uses a lot of movement and visual storytelling. Uh, and, and really the goal was to bring together intergenerational audiences, parents and children, older community members and younger, and, and, and really start conversations about what our personal agency is and what kind of change we can affect in our neighborhoods. Um, so that show uh, traveled to six different locations in uh, Upper Manhattan. Excellent. Excellent. Good work. My compliments. It's so important. And uh, I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly that the arts can affect change. And maybe in some ways, it's in some regards, it's the only way to connect with people that otherwise you would have a difficulty connecting with. Um, uh, now, we're almost out of time. I, I can talk with you for another half an hour, hour, I'm sure. Well, hopefully, we can talk again in the future on the program. Again, we're talking to Melissa F. Moshito, and she is a playwright, a director, and a producer, and I would say an activist as well. Uh, how about you give us uh, some contact information if people want to check out what you're doing, and also end with some words of inspiration, if you would. Oh, my goodness. That, that's a tall order. Well, I'll start with the easy stuff. Thank you. Um, you can find out more information about our work at www.theanthropologists.org. We're also all over Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Um, so you can find us there. But if you go to our website, then you'll, you'll get the links to everything. Um, and some some words of hope and inspiration. Is that what you were looking for? Yeah, for your fellow human beings, your fellow citizens, your fellow artists, what have you. Yeah, I think that at its core, theater is about storytelling. And the more that we can really learn how to listen and share a multitude of stories, uh, we're just going to be better off for it. Um, and I just, you know, stories can offer us the, the way forward. I, I saw that this past week at the, the theater for change workshop at Columbia law, you know, it just, the, the way to, to into your heart and, and expanding your heart is by hearing other people's stories, uh, whether they bring out, they remind you of yourself or they just expose you to a whole other way of being. Uh, we can only be the richer for it. And I'm just really excited about um, it's, it's happening slowly but surely that, that more and more stories are being told in more and more diverse ways um, all across the country, not just here in, in my pocket. Nicely, nicely said. Thank you so much for the conversation. I wish you the best and uh, hope to cross paths with you again on the program. Melissa F. Moshito, have a good one. Thank you. Take care. Take care.
father's mustache. Here's the story of my father's mustache. Before his marriage, my father had one of those pencil-thin mustaches much seen on movie stars during the 30s and 40s. My mother said she wouldn't marry him if he kept the mustache, so he shaved it off. It's not much of a story. The mustache itself, though, is a classic. It's the mustache of Zorro, and Errol Flynn, Tyrone Power, Ronald Coleman, William Powell, David Niven, Clifton Webb. Even Humphrey Bogart sported one early in his career. Filmmaker and raconteur John Waters pencils one onto his upper lip every day. The mustache was sometimes so thin, it was almost the idea of a mustache a plan for a later mustache. It's the symbol of the rake, the playboy, the aristocrat, the swell, the cad, the wit, or, with a slight twist of the wrist, the nance, 
like Franklin Panghorn, the put-upon fuss-pudget in W.C. Fields and Preston Sturge's movies, or some foolish continental fop in an Astaire Rogers musical. It was, of course, the mustache of Clark Gable. And there was my father, back in the golden age of that mustache, sporting a razor-thin attribute of cinematic aristocracy. The average man followed the fashion of the movie stars. When Gable went T-shirtless, in It Happened One Night, T-shirt sales plummeted, or so they say. My father, as far as I know, was an average man, a soldier, a mechanic, a husband, a father. And there he was, looking just like Clark Gable. I don't know much about my father. He died when I was very young. I do know a lot about Clark Gable, however. I've seen and heard Gable countless times, whereas I've never seen or heard my father. I know about Gable's rise from obscurity to stardom, from journeyman roles in stock companies to bit parts in B-movies to Gone with the Wind to the Hollywood Imperium. From unnamed Roman guard in the 1925 Ben-Hur, where he met fellow extra and future wife Carol Lombard, to Van Stanhope in Wife vs. Secretary, to Blackie Gallagher in Manhattan Melodrama, to Blackie Norton in San Francisco, to Duke Bradley in Saratoga, to Rhett Butler, the visitor from Charleston, lover and scourge of Scarlett O'Hara. I know that no matter what he did, he could never please his father, a tough guy who thought acting was for sissies. I know about his five marriages and the loss of Lombard in a plane crash, his false teeth and his halitosis, his four-pack-a-day cigarette habit. I know that he once said, or was said to have said, I'm just a lucky slob from Ohio. My favorite Gable film is It Happened One Night, his breakthrough role in Frank Capra and Robert Riskin's story of an heiress and a newsman. Scolding and wooing Claudette Colbert, teaching her how to dunk a donut and thumb a ride, telling off his editor and setting the heiress's rich father straight. He was a wise-cracking, warm-hearted hero. I got millions, he tells a pathetic, Capra-esque boy whose mother had just fainted from hunger, and he hands him his last ten dollars so the kid can buy some grub for his ma. In his last picture, The Misfits, released in 1961 after his death, Gable looked haggard and worn, like my father in his last picture, a grainy, photomat image of a gaunt and prematurely aged 42-year-old man with cancer and not much time to live. Gable starred with two other doomed icons, Montgomery Clift and Marilyn Monroe, who kept a photo of Gable on her wall when she was growing up and said that he was her father. Gable, my father, and me. 
it's absurd to say there's any connection other than we, that we were all alive once at the same time and they've been dead for a very long time and I'm still alive. And it's a scandal to say that Gable, a movie star composed of celluloid and publicity stills, could mean more to me than my father, a creature of flesh and blood whose flesh informs mine. Yet I've never dreamed of my father. How could I, when I was so young when he died? But I must have dreamed of Gable, if not asleep, then during the waking dream of movie-watching. My most precious memory of my father is that slight mustache, floating in my mind like the disembodied grin of the Cheshire Cat. Can you have a memory of something you can't possibly remember? Do I conflate my father with the black-and-white vision of a puckish Clark Gable? With one quick mental brushstroke, I draw that famous mustache, and I see the faded outline of my father's face. Fellas, this is Woody Herman. We got a V-disc here we just finished a few minutes ago. It's a very beautiful thing. As a matter of fact, I'm sure all you boys from Brooklyn and other places south of the border will appreciate this tune. It has a very touching title, Your Father's Mustache.
Taylor. He lost his father at a year or two past ten. The coal mine caved in, and since then he harbored a distrust and fear of the larger world. His youthful innocence trapped deeply within. His Catholic upbringing tarnished him in worry and sin. The same is true to a significant extent of his closest kin. He smiled and took his last breaths somewhat recently. He was a force, iconic and laconic in our clan. He came from there to here 
from where he had been, and we loved him. episode 304 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, playwright, director, and producer Melissa F. Moshito. I also would like to thank our associate producer and resident essayist Uncle Cesare, a.k.a. Dr. Michael Pavis. And these musical artists... Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Buddy Holly, Andres Osborne, Amy Mann, Woody Herman and his herd, Carados, as well as Terence Blanchard and Brantford Marsalis, too. And I'd like to wish my Uncle Domenico everlasting peace. I love you. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, 
Let's try to enjoy this time. Take care. If you would like to share some comments with us, we'd love to hear them. Email us at ewconundrum at radiofreebrooklyn.org. That's E-W-C-O-N-U-N-D-R-U-M at radiofreebrooklyn.org.